Oh, by the way, are we recording this? Because I'm not recording it. I just wanted to check. I sure hope we're recording this, Roy. But I, th- I think that's on. I think that's on our end. Well, we'll see what happens at the end when we press play. Because there's no recording icon up on my screen. Yeah, no. I think I've got it over here. I think we should be okay. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. What I love about you, Rory, whether it's, you know, in this forum or live on stage, um, is in all the right ways, you're a shock to the system. And our industry, certainly your company, Ogilvy, has been better for it since you started there so many years ago. And as an industry, we're a hell of a lot better with you around and, you know, continuing to just dazzle and amaze and bring your own special magic. So... Thank you so much for for taking the time to be with us. The podcast is uh, called Great Minds, and we've uh, had a you know really eclectic group. And I thought I'd start Rory with I love the description of your uh, attractively vague job title of vice chairman. And I thought attractively vague. I thought that fit you to a T. Oh, uh, it's, it's actually a philosophical point as well, which is. One of the problems in the industry, I I don't want to come across like Madison Avenue, manslaughter all over again. But one of the problems in the industry is that payment by the hour has created an agency structure where everybody is too narrowly functionally defined. Um, And I always think, you know, I always think that uh, the value in advertising is created in the intersection of different things. You know, I, I, I'm still a vast um, opponent of the separation of media and creative, which still, I believe, is an entirely deranged decision, which limits the value we can create quite significantly. And so the business of actually um, defining everybody narrowly by the function they provide to the client in order to satisfy some procurement spreadsheet uh, has been deeply injurious to the effectiveness of the ad industry. Because if you think about it, payment by commission had payment by commission had huge disadvantages, but at least people were conscious of the disadvantages. That's the first one. But also with payment by commission, it did allow agencies to invest more heavily in what you might call I call it rogue B talent, but um, you know slight outliers. Well, we've been lucky enough to have you on our stage all over the world, and one of the things when you sit in the audience and listen to you is you're not a commodity you know your style your 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 body of work your body of knowledge is unique and i think what you're speaking to is the trend in our business sometimes fueled by technology of being more treated more like a commodity versus something that is custom made yeah, it's a very reductionist kind of um, uh, view of how the world works, that it's attempting to reconstruct what you might call, uh, you know, the design of mechanical devices, uh, and, you know, the obsession with kind of rep- replicable process is, I think, it's a category error in the kind of work we do. You know, it isn't that kind of work. We're not trying to produce the same identical thing efficiently time after time. And therefore, to apply that kind of thinking to what we do is just fundamentally using the wrong maths. So I want to go back to uh, and talk about behavioral science, but let's first go back to 1988. You join 
uh, as a graduate trainee. Take me back. What do you remember that first day walking into the office? Uh, the first thing is I absolutely loved it from the get-go. Um, uh, if you think about it, I was in Ogilvy and made the direct, as it was then called, which was the direct marketing wing of Ogilvy. And um, obviously your first day at work uh, is always going to be interesting. You know, it's full of things like dispatch riders and fax machines that you've never really come across before. So there was that simple sheer childish novelty of discovering how an office worked. But it was much more than that because uh, then Ogilvy at the time, it was an extraordinarily lucky place. Uh, You know, other than perhaps landing at DDB, for example, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, in New York, you know, eight years earlier, or maybe landing at BMP in London at the same time. It was about the best start you could have hoped to have got. Uh, Drayton Bird was the chairman who, um, you know, everybody should know, but he's the kind of uh, doyen of, and still is, the doyen of British direct marketing. You had an extraordinarily interesting creative department, which was incredibly diverse, fascinating people, for example, such as Paul O'Donnell, who now runs Ogilvy across Europe, uh, who had just started there, I suppose, about six months before I had. Um, And Andy Greenaway, for example. But an extraordinary number of people from that place and that time went on to do extraordinarily interesting things. And it was also, I think, I think David Ogilvy was right. David Ogilvy always said, if any copywriter particularly, Um, should spend four years working in direct response advertising before they work in mainstream advertising because you get that experience of what works and what doesn't. I think it also gives you two other things. It gives you an attention to detail. You realize that little things can be vitally important. Um, And it also gives you um, an appetite for results, a hunger for results, as David spotted. But the third thing it gives you is a kind of vocabulary to discuss how advertising works things like call to action, you know, that kind of stuff, which is helpful in learning because it's much, much easier to teach people if you've got a vocabulary than if you have that slightly, at the the very worst, mainstream advertising in creative would have a kind of teaching thing where you came up with an idea and your boss would go, that's shit, that's a bit better, I don't like that, God, what the hell is this crap, you see? Whereas in direct marketing, you could learn, but the final thing was, Um, even from, I suppose, about the first six months of work, it sowed the seeds for what was to become my interest in uh, behavioral science in general. Because you had these completely counterintuitive findings. You perform a test, uh, you'd send 50,000 letters to three uh, randomly selected uh, groups, um, representative randomly selected groups. And the thing that would affect response would quite often be some variable which was entirely um, tangential to what a a logical economist would have thought was the important thing. Years later, this is literally 30 years later, uh, we had a mailing for BT uh, done by Ogilvy when I was then vice chairman. And it was extraordinarily successful. It was three times more successful than anything else they'd done. And they went around to various people and they said, can you explain why it's so successful? And of course, intelligent, rational people want, for reasons of status apart from anything else, they want to come up with a really important sounding answer. So it should, could be about consumer confidence or demography or whatever it might be. You know, you'd always want to explain the success. 
And they finally came to me. And I said, look, I've worked in this game for 30 years. Trust me, no one else is going to tell you this, but the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. Mm. <laughs> now, by the way, I mean, okay, now, if you use, I mentioned this in my book, I think, if you think about evolutionary psychology, it's not actually that strange that we're very, very heavily attuned to pay attention to anything that has furry animals on it. Okay? Right, right. <laughs> And you might, you might argue that John Webster's great lesson. I mean, John Webster, the great English copywriter, said, my question with an idea isn't whether it's got legs, it's whether it's got four legs and a tail. But, you know, something like that. It's very difficult in advertising to say something like ads with animals on gain more attention than ads without animals. We all kind of know it, okay? But it doesn't suit our more proper to go around going, listen, mate, try and get an animal into that one. And the great thing about direct marketing is it taught me from very, very early on that surprisingly trivial things, even embarrassing things to some extent, can make an extraordinary difference to the efficacy of your communication. I think, I think, I think all, by the way, all good creative people kind of know this instinctively, which is why more rational people often find creative people frustrating, because to them it looks as though the creative people have no sense of proportion. But the creative people realize that the consumer, in a way, has no sense of proportion either. Interesting. Now, now, David was, to your point about rational and irrational, he was an interesting guy in that, David Ogilvie I'm referring to, in that he was meticulous about research into consumers. But also, I think one of his, one of his very favorite quotes that I always remember was, the best ideas come as jokes, make your thinking as funny as possible. So he really understood how you have to combine sort of insights into behavior, but also a light touch. Uh, by the way, that quote is extraordinary because I worked, I work, I've worked for Ogilvy for 30 years and I've always instinctively felt that there's something incredibly valuable. One, one of the reasons I slightly worry about, you know, if you, if you get a hyper-politically correct culture within an agency where people are just too timid to say stupid things. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, what I'm not doing is defending um, uh, speech which is offensive, upsetting, distressing. But I think there's a value in an agency where people feel they can speak unedited, okay? And of course, comedy writing, comedy writing will be exactly the same world where you have to accept. There was a recent court case, I think, in Los Angeles where the people who'd worked as, as PAs to a comedy writing room were more or less suing for distress because they said, and I can believe this, that comedy writers will occasionally go off on unbelievably grotesque uh, kind of, <laughs> you know, right. um, hypothetical. You know, they go, wouldn't this be funnier if we set it in an abortion clinic? You know, that kind of stuff. Now, right. The point about that suggestion isn't that it's the serious suggestion. You're not going to do that, but it might get you to a place which you wouldn't get to otherwise. And so I'm very, very wary about self-correction. And we, we have a little saying in Ogilvy um, in the behavioral science practice, dare to be trivial and don't be afraid of looking stupid because a kind of Python-esque humor is often a, an evolved mental capability which takes you to a new place. Because a lot of humor, if you think about it, a lot of humor is very similar to a lot of advertising. It's about reframing, okay? Um, and so what you do is, you know, um, uh, you know, a standard joke is you, you 
tell a joke about something you did, and then you say, I ended up in prison. And someone goes, why is that illegal? And then it turns out that you did it in public rather than in private, okay? That'd be the example, you know. Um, you know, now, advertising in many ways works, and Robert Cialdini's book, Persuasion is great about this. Advertising works quite often by just redirecting attention. So the thing that, you know, once seemed important now isn't. Or, for example, something that would seem like a weakness, we're number two in rental cars, Avis, becomes a strength when you add the four words, so we try harder. And you have, OK, The Economist. You know, I never read The Economist, management trainee, age 42. And the structure of that and the Avis ad is very, very similar to the structure of many jokes. Good book by Jimmy Carr, by the way, comedian, which is co-written by a copywriter whose name I've briefly forgotten, but I'll try and get a plug uh, later. Um, but he co-wrote, Jimmy Carr used to work in marketing for Shell, um, and he was very briefly in advertising, and he wrote a, a book about comedy and co-wrote it with an advertising copyright. It's called The Naked Jape, and it's very, very good about this. It's a great read for any creative person. You were magical on stage with us. I recall at Advertising Week Europe, we had you and Jimmy Carr together. Oh, yeah. that, was, that was extraordinary to me. If you can imagine, okay, because I like to consider myself as tolerably quick-witted and reasonably good with a repast. And this is like talking to Jimmy Carr on stage like that. The experience for me was fantastic, but it was also terrifying. Yeah. If you can imagine what it's like if you've driven a fairly standard sedan and you suddenly step into a Formula One car, that was pretty much the feeling. It oh, <laughs> me. Uh, it's astonishing. You realize why these people earn their money. There's a great thing in comedy called brain to mouth. And the thing that certain people possess is just an incredibly fast brain to mouth. And, I, you know, I kind of, you know, reasonable brain to mouth is kind of my stock in trade. Yeah. But these people are a different flavor yeah, of the universe. Playing ball <laughs> at a high, playing ball at a high yeah. level. I want to go back yeah. to what you were talking about in terms of the current state of the world and uh, and comedy. One of our upcoming guests on Great Minds is Susie Essman, who stars on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, and, my God, oh, joy. Oh, I cannot wait. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, season 10 is fabulous. And we were talking about, about Larry David. And if, I if said... If you can get a, just, it's a tiny favor, but if you can get a Rory, you fat fuck out of her... We will get an email and a phone call. You got it. Okay, that, okay I, I can retire at that point. This will be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, no, so I, I, I'm an absolute... Um, uh, I, 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 and what, Jim, funny enough... He's the perfect exemplar, Larry, um, of something Jimmy Carr also mentions, which is comedians and advertising people. What do we do? We notice things. You know, and the great thing about Larry is he goes around, and the reason, like a creative person, he's so goddamn frustrating is because he notices things and cares about things that other people don't. And, and the, 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 we're getting it here on Sky Comedy. Uh, I wasn't paid to say that, um, but we're getting on Sky Comedy. The thing is an absolute gift. It's a joy. I love the thing to death. No, I, I think your your take is exactly right. And I did ask her, and we had Larry at Advertising Week in New York several years ago, and, and we were all excited to have him, of course. And I asked her, how is he different on the show relative to real life? And what she said was, on the show, he has no filter. So whatever comes to mind, he says out loud, whereas in life, 
you know, he has deploys a, a little bit of a filter. Are we in society now so concerned about the filter that we're going to lose some of the comedy? Yeah, I worry about that. I mean, you have a case where uh, this is, by the way, it's a very, very ineffectual um, uh, form of uh, attempting to improve humanity, which is by laying down context-free laws about what you can say and what you can't. So nearly everybody, I mean, people fundamentally respond badly to um, uh, context-free rules. Because what you can say in a comedy club is different from what you can say in a meeting. What I can say in a client meeting is not the same as what I can say in an internal meeting, and so on. And now, you know, don't get me wrong. And what I'm not doing is is suggesting that we ought to turn in, you know, turn the whole world ruthless. But context-free, the attempt to sort of legislate in a context-free way tends to create, by the way, a lot of pushback because people instinctively dislike it. I'll give a parallel of this. And I was talking, funnily enough, at a conference yesterday, virtually, I used to do that, um, where someone was talking about, do you know what Netflix has as its travel policy? Make decisions in the interests of Netflix. That's its travel policy, okay? It's no rule about what hotel you can stay in. There's no rule about whether you can travel at the front of the plane or the back. It basically just says, use your intelligent judgment. And um, first of all, I think everybody, you know, uh, the beautiful thing about that is that when you give people very strict rules, the rules then become stupid and people start breaking them. And so, you know, an example of that is the BBC has a rule that you can't travel first class on the train up to Manchester. And a colleague of mine who's a, a, a colleague of mine, a fellow journalist of mine. Uh, is made to travel in second class with a ticket that costs 300 quid because it's a full fare second class ticket, while all his mates are sitting in first class getting free tea and buns because they bought an advanced first class ticket that cost about 70. And so when you, when you try and legislate in a way that doesn't allow for individual judgment, rather like the speed camera, it creates particular hostility. Every rule should have a degree of kind of intelligence built in where you credit the rule, um, uh, the rule taker with some degree of judgment and discernment. And so, no, I think that business of Larry, I mean, the, I can imagine he has absolutely no filter. Presumably in real life, he's learned to filter himself a bit. Yeah, no, I, I think, in, and, but, the, but the, the beauty of the show is that total lack of filter. And I think that's where a lot of the, a lot of the, the comedy comes from. Oh, it's glorious. Yeah, yeah. And of course, of course, there are wonderful cases. He says to his friend, you know, so you're into the whole affirmative action thing when his friend has an African-American doctor. Right. Okay? And it's the classic example of a completely misjudged joke. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure and, is. Uh, you know, that, so earlier episodes. But I mean, it, it has, a, you know, it has a bearing on what we do because... You, I think there are similar patterns, as you said, in between uh, creativity. That creativity is, to some extent, a form of nonconformity, because it starts when you notice something or say something. Maybe it's never been said because it it makes you sound stupid. I mean, literally, we're a very status conscious animal, and I, I recently achieved what I consider a bit of a breakthrough in in the behavioural science world. By asking a question about rail overcrowding, transport overcrowding, which isn't going to be an issue for the next few months, by the way. Um, but my question about overcrowding was, why don't people like standing on trains? Now, 
OK, we know that people don't like standing on trains. The self-evident answer is because sitting down is nice and standing up is unpleasant. But I said, I don't think that's actually the full reason. We've been sitting at a desk all day. If you gave us somewhere to lean and a bum rest and a little table for our laptop, we'd actually be pretty happy standing near vertically. So I said, maybe the problem is, is because people with a seat get everything. They get a view out of the window. They get a table. They get a plug. They get a place to put their coffee. They get a place to put their bag. Whereas someone without a seat gets zilch. Now, if you reframed the choice so there was a trade-off between sitting and standing, maybe the seats are in the middle and the standing rooms all by the window, and the standing people get a ledge on which they can lean their elbow and a little place where they can put their laptop, okay, and a bit of a bum rest maybe people would actually choose to stand, leaving the seats for people who really needed them. Now, the reason, the reason I raise that is because that question of why don't people like standing on trains is a kind of Larry David question. You know, it's, I, don't, I don't get it. Everybody else conforms to this normative assumption. And Larry comes in, who would, I think it's fair to say, have been an absolutely brilliant, brilliant advertising creative. Uh, by the way, um, uh, interestingly, in Ogilvy, uh, Diamond Shreddies, which I showed in my first TED talk, uh, that was the product of a stand-up comedian who was freelancing in Ogilvy, Toronto, part product. Uh, he was one of the team. Uh, and that's exactly that kind of, uh, that Python-esque absurdity. I solved a little problem I had. I, I don't know whether it works, so let's be candid here, but it was a good suggestion. That, um, there was a, an organization which encourages five firefighters to go into typically housing projects in the US to encourage people to install smoke detectors and it hands out smoke detectors for free. And the problem is they can get people to accept one, but they can't get people to accept three. I don't know why entirely, but people go, no, 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 I'll have one in the hall, but after that, that's it, I'm done. And I said, jokingly, almost thinking back to a comedy sketch, if you turned up with 50, which is a kind of Python-esque thing where you start, you know, it's very Rowan Atkinson or, or, you know, you start suddenly putting smoke detectors all over the place, so, you know, on the wall. You know, you start putting them on the, um, uh, uh, you start, you know, and I said, if you turned up with 50, I said, you go, well, normally we install 50, but I think we can make do with five. Then you probably, nobody would insist on only one. They'd only have three. So actually this then became a sensible suggestion, which was if you turn up with five, People will probably accept three. If, you, if your framing is, well, normally we recommend five detectors, but here we think we can make do with three or four, then at the very least, nobody's going to have one. And so those kind of the ability to deal with the absurd and to spot the absurd um, is fundamental to everything we do, I think. And, and you talk about that sort of space between buyers looking for almost preferring, I think the words you used were catastrophe over perfection. That's, I thought that was a very interesting insight. Oh, the avoidance of catastrophe, yeah. Uh, I think one of the interesting things is that the way economists think people choose and the way we ourselves think we choose consciously is not the same as the way in which we really choose when large... Um, large parts of the brain which are opaque to introspection, large parts of unconscious thought become involved in our decision-making process. And I think we instinctively choose differently to the way we choose, we think we choose when we're talking about choice. So I'll give you a lovely example of that, which is very, I think, very germane to the ad industry, uh, which is 
you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been on an Ad, Adlan pitch. Okay, procurement always hand out to up to clients who are sitting out on the pitch a balanced scorecard. Okay, because that's how procurement people think you should decide because they've got this stupid fucking oh sorry we don't even get me started. Okay, stupid bollocks view of the world. Okay, which is everything is quantifiable. Okay, and everything's linear up. And everything's additive. What a piss. Okay. So anyway, they suggest you should judge the agency on chemistry and creative flair and strategic ability and you know uh, team fit and you know and they provide a whole load list of variables. And the view is that the, the individual clients should then score us all individually on those little um, uh, individual qualities, and then the agency with the biggest score should win. And of course. If you ask anybody who's participated in that process after a few drinks, what do you really do? They go, I decided on the agency I wanted to win, and then I backfilled the numbers to make it work, basically. Okay. And in the same way, I think when we make consumer decisions, that's what we do. We make a choice. Um, uh, we make a choice rationally. Uh, sorry, we make a choice instinctively. And then we backfill our post-rationalization in order to make sense of the decision we've just made, even though a large part of that decision was heavily influenced by parts of the brain which don't really talk and don't really use numbers. You know? And so one of the things I think we do when we make decisions instinctively is we're not really asking the question, what's the best optimal decision here? We're asking the question, what's the worst that can happen? How can I minimize the risk of regret? which is why I always argue McDonald's is the most successful restaurant in the world. It's not that it's very, very good. It's very, very, very good at not being terrible. You know, if you go to McDonald's, you, you know, you, you're, never, you're never disappointed. You're never ripped off. The food always tastes pretty good. You never get the shits, which is why even in massive culinary centers like Paris or Milan, you see people who have, you know, an hour to wait for a train and they go, okay, the search costs and downside risk costs of finding somewhere better uh, aren't really worth it, golden arches. And so a large part of this, I think, is why we prefer brands, because I think, think we see brands as a reliable heuristic indicator of low variance, because someone with a reputation has more at stake and more, more to fear from customer disappointment than someone with no reputational skin in the game. The fact that the leading brand tends to enjoy that disproportionate advantage over the second and third place brand, that Dirichlet distribution, is all a product of the fact that in evolutionary terms, a degree of herd behavior and a degree of habituation both make good evolutionary sense for a creature that's really trying to avoid extinction or disaster. It also explains, by the way, why young, why older people become more conservative in their tastes, because you're more risk averse as you age. Uh, it's terrible if you if you've got young kids and you want to go on holiday. I'm fifty. I'm fifty four. Okay, and to be absolutely honest, I want to go back to the place we went last year because it was fine and I had a really nice time and I know where the shops are and it's great. And my kids are all going, let's go to the Rio Carnival. Let's go to Machu Picchu. I'm going, oh, God, I'll get bloody you know, altitude sickness. You know, I'll get my wallet stolen. <laughs> oh, I don't want any of that. I'm going to go back to where I went last year. And so that's another factor, which is, you know, possibly explains why marketers half rightly but disproportionately tend to focus on younger consumers. Let's go back 
to your earlier career, as you've evolved, Rory, into a great mind, surely you benefited from exposure to other great minds when you were first starting at Ogilvy in 88 or even before that. Who, who helped you? What are the great minds that you look back upon early in your career or in your formative years? Oh, I'm too many, too many to list, but I mean, I could include the, the late Andy Firth, uh, who um, tragically died in Australia, uh, tragically young. Uh, Andy Greenaway, uh, I mean, Randy Hanfelder, Steve Harrison. I mean, those people in the very early stages, uh, obviously Drayton Bird, David Ogilvy himself, who I only met once, but who, of course, through his books, uh, was a fantastic influence. Um, and also, was a you know the, the whole business of having a company culture is not really a, you know in the case of Ogilvy, um, it, it's still you know he still directs things from beyond the grave to an extent. So, for example, when the internet came along, uh, there was a little bit of a divide in Ogilvy as to whether we should take it seriously early. And what sort of answered the question was everybody, if you simply ask the question, do you think had he been born 50 years later, David Ogilvy would have been excited by the internet, to which the answer was inarguably yes. So that kind of settled that question. So you've watched, I mean, we, when we talk about advertising, we, we began in New York in 2004. And in 2004, Facebook was on the Harvard campus. The iPhone was three years away. YouTube was three years away. Almost none of the technologically driven subjects that dominate today existed in any form, let alone existed in a lesser light. You've watched the whole birth of technology and how it's intersected and impacted our industry. Where are we better and where are we a little worse? Uh, That's a really interesting question. Um, I think we've disproportionately used technology to um, we where marketing has lost the battle with technology is we need to have a sensible um, uh, human focused debate about the relative role of human face to face contact and impersonal contact. And I think. Uh, disproportionately under the malign influence of consulting firms and others, we've disproportionately used technology to supplant human contact even when it's ve- when it's valuable. And so as a result, I think we've sometimes uh, treated efficiency as a proxy for effectiveness. And that's an assumption that comes from economics, uh, and it tends to infect business decision-making, but efficiency and effectiveness are not the same thing. And if you want me to get really philosophical about this, I think that um, the internet has cracked the for- quite well cracked the forty percent of advertising, which is kind of efficiency driven performance advertising. It's completely failed to replicate the costly signalling effect, which is sixty percent of display. So there isn't an online equivalent of the Super Bowl, to put it in a kind of pithy sentence. And if we can work out, and funnily enough, I had a conversation, a bit of name dropping, I had a conversation with Vint Cerf last week uh, about this very question, um, that there's a missed opportunity, which is that the assumption is that advertising works through the very, very efficient distribution of timely messages to exactly the right person at the right time. And you know, I'm a direct marketer, okay? I'm not going to dispute that, but there's a huge value to that. There's also valuable learning that arises from that and so forth. But there's a large part of advertising, which is Peacock's tail. 
the very fact that it's expensive and indiscriminate is what gives it its deeper meaning to those parts of the brain which decode not only what a message says, but how credible it is. The very fact, for example, that by doing mass advertising, there's an implication that the product you're selling is going to be widely popular and repeatedly popular, that, that you can't convey that. Now, I'll give you a very simple example. Um, one of the great privileges of having this job title, and the fact actually it's a privilege of the fact that Ogilvy is quite well known outside the immediate marketing world, is I occasionally and my colleagues occasionally get to have conversations with, you know, really preeminent people in related fields like Nicholas Christakis at Yale, for example, or Daniel Kahneman and so on. And Christakis makes the point that the single biggest indicator of uh, the single biggest driver of whether someone has solar panels on their house is whether they have a neighbor or two who also has solar panels. No one wants to be the lone weirdo who's the guy with the solar panels. Okay, Now, a reasonable inference we can draw from that is that it would massively accelerate the adoption of solar panels if we did mass advertising for solar panels. Because the implication of a TV ad for... Um, ring up now and get your solar panels installed is that you are no longer weird installing solar panels because the very existence of a mass advertisement promoting it is essentially proof that this is no longer a weird behavior and that would be an example of something where i think the very narrow reductionist and deterministic view of advertising which has become predominant over the last 15 years I'll give you another example. I'm doing a load of work, much to my joy, with LinkedIn, who are wonderful because they've created this thing called the B2B Institute. And one of the things, one of the things we've argued, and LinkedIn have also written a very good paper on this, is a large part of advertising is probabilistic, right? You don't know how it's going to work in advance, nor can you account for or attribute its value accurately in retrospect. All you can say probabilistically is someone who is famous and widely known is much more lucky, likely to get lucky than someone that nobody's ever heard of. Okay, So let's say you're a B2B company and you spend money on becoming famous. Very many of the effects of that fame will never be attributable to the marketing expenditure. So when your chief executive rings somebody up, they return his calls because they've heard of the company, right? You know, I imagine most agencies you ring, they return your call, right? You know, I'm, I'm maybe <laughs> I'm, I'm not being presumptuous. You know, if you ring Chief, if you ring Mark Reed, he's going to ring you back, right? Okay. Now you can't put a dollar value on that, okay? And it'd be completely ridiculous to attempt to do so. But nonetheless, it is an extraordinarily valuable positive benefit of Adweek being famous and you yourself personally being a bit famous. Okay. Now. If you're a famous company, people will come to you with good ideas. People will work for you for less money. People will come to you with partnership proposals. All of those things will happen as a byproduct of fame. Now, you can't plan them because you don't know at the time of planning where opportunity is going to present itself. And you can't actually quantify those effects afterwards. Now, does that mean you shouldn't do advertising at all simply because you can't measure it? That strikes me as, I mean, if we took the same approach to medicine, which is we only use drugs where we know exactly how they work, okay, down to the individual gene level response. We wouldn't have much medicine, okay? Now, 
So this requirement for accountability is deeply dangerous. And I, I, I had an interesting sentence. The single biggest competitive advantage a business can enjoy, given the fact that most organizations can't do anything that finance doesn't like, the biggest competitive advantage you can have as a business is the ability to do things that the, your finance director doesn't want. Because if you're confined to doing things that make a finance director happy, very large areas of alchemy, of magic creation, will be basically denied to you. On the, on the other hand, if you can do those things and your competitors can't because their finance director has a stranglehold over anything you know, slightly counterintuitive or weird, the comparative advantage you have and the chance you enjoy to become distinctive, and I mean that in a kind of Byron Sharpie way, okay, um, uh, then that's actually an extraordinary comparative advantage. Talk about the enduring power of ideas and are we looking, because of the reliance on technology in particular, how young people communicate so often without talking to each other or looking each other in the eye? Are we at risk in diminishing uh, our value proposition on the power of ideas? Yeah, um, the fundamental... Um, the thing is, for, you know, I'm very critical of the ad industry, but I absolutely love it and I love what it does. And the interesting thing is all the industries, by the way, which have really interesting margins. You know, if you look at the luxury goods industry, although probably not such a great time to look at the luxury goods industry, to be honest, you know, I really need a Kelly handbag. Um, but if you look at luxury goods industry, you look at Apple, you look at Hollywood, those industries with enormous margins are magic creators. They create value for parts of the brain that other brands don't reach. Okay, so there's you know, grotesque misquotation. Um, and by doing so, they create value. Now, most most deterministic thinkers, if you like, most people who believe you should proceed on the basis of the knowable are incapable of doing that because to them it doesn't make sense that you'd pay a huge premium for a phone that only had 17 hours battery life, but where it had a lovely screen interface, okay? Because the battery life's quantifiable and the, and the ooh, okay, the monkey effect of touching a screen isn't quantifiable. I was with a bunch of people from Nokia on the day the iPhone, the first iPhone came out. And they were all look, looking at the material weaknesses of the iPhone in terms of things like battery power, processing power, or, or you know, size even, okay, or weight, okay? And of course, what they were looking at is the parts of a mobile phone that don't produce any magic. What they didn't realize is that when people love the phone so much, they'd find a workaround for the battery life, like charging it at work or buying a case with a solid grade battery attached to the back. And so all the really profitable businesses create a kind of magic. And the economist Tim Harford, a great British author on economics, came to me and he said, I don't understand why you people have such a difficult life. Well, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, Apple, he said, okay, here's a trillion dollar company which owes most of its value to the creation of emotional rather than rational appreciation. And I said, yeah, the trouble is that everybody wants to be Apple, but their in internal police force doesn't allow them to do it. Because if you're a mainstream economist, I'm going to make some friends here in the US, okay? If you're an Austrian school economist, which is a tiny minority niche school of economics, 
you believe that marketing value is on a par with manufacturing value. Um, Peter Drucker's uh, he's Austrian. His dad was an Austrian school economist, best mates with Schumpeter. Okay? Um, innovation and marketing are the only valuable things an organization does. Everything else is of cost. Okay? And that's because he understands that working out what you can make and working out how to sell it are the two ways you generate value. In mainstream economics, the value is supposed to be inherent in the product, and marketing merely adds a little bit of magic dust on top. Now, I think this is in Entirely wrong in our understanding of, okay, Red Bull, Dyson, Apple, okay, I can take $6 billion companies, seed lip for crying out loud, okay, not got a billion dollar company, none of them, first of all, none of them would, be, would have been backed by any data when they were launched to suggest that what they were doing was a good idea. Nespresso, right? Okay, no one's going to pay 50 pence for a single cup of coffee at home. Where's the data that said that Nespresso was a great idea? It wasn't there. But if you perform it with alchemy, which is you put it in a pod, see a frame of comparison of Starbucks rather than an actual house, suddenly all the rules change. Okay? That's, that's what I mean by alchemy. And, and so the, the point I'm making is that every company wants to be Apple, but is essentially its own rationality, its own fixation with rationality and a kind of reductionist view of the world is essentially, nah, I'm not suggesting that every company can do it. Have a look, there's a glorious idea. Richard Shotton gave a presentation yesterday, author of a great book called The Choice Factory, which I'm going to plug. Um, uh, his recommendations, he's got six book, book recommendations, by the way. One of them's me, and the other one's a book by a guy called Stuart Sutherland, now dead, who is an academic at the University of Sussex. So I did say, I do take a certain pride from the fact that in your six best books on this subject, 33% um, of them are written by people called Sutherland. There you go. So I, there I'm you getting go. pretty chuffed by that one. Absolutely. Um, uh, so, when, um, but um, he, he, made, he points to a wonderful example. This is what I love about behavioral science. The trouble with fucking ad agencies, okay, is when they were paid, when they stopped being paid on commission and they started being paid by fee, okay, what they should have done is had a big sit down and said, hold on, this completely changes who we can work for, who we can sell to. Do we just need to talk to marketing people? There are loads of problems all over the world that can be solved by a mixture of creativity and human insight, okay? Why do we just, why do we go and talk to smaller businesses that don't have a big media budget? Because we can still be of value solving their problems. We are no longer confined to solving problems where a large media bought media component is part of the solution. This is, should have been the most liberating moment for the ad industry. Instead, first of all, because it was run by fucking account people, okay, who understand how to make money, but they don't understand how to make how, how to create value. And so the ad industry was fundamentally calibrated about around those activities which were profitable, not the activities which are valuable. Okay? So, and secondly, the muscle memory of what an ad agency is and all those status concerns around CAM meant that ad agencies continued, even though we haven't been paid on commission since 1989, we continue to behave as though we were. And it's total insanity. Now, the great thing is, the reason I mentioned Richard Shotton is he told me about a book called The uh, the Magic Castle in Hollywood. And it charges about £250 a night, which is quite expensive um, when you look at pictures of the hotel, okay? 
But the magic castle is a beautiful example of Kano theory, which I'll, I'll leave you to Google. K A N O. Uh, it's it, it, it's um, uh, he's a Japanese academic involved in the consumer electronics industry. But there are certain alchemic properties of a product which can create delight and excitement and differentiation out of all proportion to their costs or seeming importance. And the, one of the things uh, that the Magic Castle does, it's kind of dated 1950s or 1930s building where, you know, I mean, you know, fairly basic, very, very clean. So I'm not dissing it. OK, I'm not saying this is a crap hotel which gets away with it because it does some cute things. It's a pretty good basic hotel. But it has, for example, a popsicle hotline next to the pool. So if you lift a telephone, someone will appear with a huge range of what, what British people call ice lollies. OK. And I noticed that when they return your laundry, it's hand wrapped. There's a smiley face on the on your laundry is free. Nice touch. OK. But also there's a sprig of lavender tucked into the thing. OK. But, but Richard Shotton was quite rightly making the point that this this hotel is ranked on TripAdvisor number six in Los Angeles. Now, that's exactly an example of Kano theory. That is, in a sense, the apple of hotels. Gotcha. Yeah, well, fascinating stuff. So because finance people have a total aversion to um, uh, essentially to to Kano magic ideas, okay, because their whole world is Newtonian and kind of constrained by nothing can be created and destroyed, you know, second law of thermodynamics thinking, uh, you know, to every problem, there's a single optimal solution. In complex systems, okay, Go and read some shit by the Santa Fe Institute occasionally. You know, in complex systems, the rules are totally different. As I say, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. That ain't true in physics, right? But it's true in psychology. And so this attempt to attract, to apply, which economics has been the worst offender in, to attach a kind of false certainty to the science of human behavior has been unbelievably damaging. Speaking of damaging, and the word disaster came up earlier, we're in a challenging moment for humanity. Um, in one sense, we're try- trying to find where the glass is half full in the midst of all this. For the first time that I can recall, literally the entire world is all facing an identical set of conditions with varying degrees yeah. of severity, but we are all... Uh, metaphorically, this may not be the best, but we are all in one boat at the moment. Is there some good that you can see from a behavioral science vantage point, looking at the scale of humanity from you know top to bottom, east to west, north to south, where we come out of this thing and somehow we're better for it? Uh, first of all, we'll see which brands rise to the challenge and which don't, uh, which will be interesting. Uh, that's that's my that's my only brand related question because this isn't really principally about you know about brand marketing okay but it it is a proof point for those brands which have claimed to exhibit purpose and all kinds of high minded things this is when actually uh, you know the check comes due on all your promises okay um, in behavioral terms I can see enormous positives. For one thing, what we're doing now, maybe, maybe your conference should never be a physical conference again. Or maybe your conference should be one big physical conference once a year and the rest of it should be virtual. Okay, because 
the adoption of these technologies, which in many cases is being forced. I've been an advocate for video conferencing for ages because I always noticed partly being a bit of an old fucker. Okay, I'm 54, <laughs> which is that agency makes not that old, accurate. Rory. 54 is not that old. No, no. Um, but but I, I find that I find that in business has a kind of pace of kind of uh, preferring. Um, per, it has a default mode of senseless activity. And an awful lot of business travel or meetings or physical stuff uh, is actually, you know, driven by forces other than the need to create economic value. So in environmental terms, in consumption terms as well, it's a fantastic opportunity for the world to engage in a big rethink. Um, and so what, whatever happens, there is a value, uh, and Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, would probably show this. There's a value to having occasional shocks in a system because left to their own devices for too long. OK, now just to be clear about this, I'm not remotely left wing uh, in, in British Adlam terms. I'm a bit of a kind of you know, lone sort of gammon Tory, uh, slightly Eurosceptic, OK? But for far too long, the business world and, and, and the, well, the entire world and the world of human behavior have been over-optimized on certain things. Okay, they, you know, they've taken certain parameters and disproportionately optimized around those parameters. So you know, scale and efficiency as opposed to resilience, for example, would be a very simple example. Um, you know, uh, the way in which we, you know, the way in which we probably value staff has probably become ridiculously kind of numerical and, and all about optimization. You know, the great thing about the ad agency in 1970 is Jay Walter Thompson in 1970 would have probably employed two people who were borderline alcoholic and dysfunctional 70% of the time, but once every five weeks, they could somehow dig you out of a hole, you know. Right. And I think, you know, that, that was a different approach to the approach, which is we must have 100% utilization and billability. Okay. It was a more varied, diverse approach to how you, how you hired people. And um, so the world's become over-optimized around the same things and various things have become habituated and enshrined. And this is an opportunity to just disrupt and then for a new shape to take form. So an example, I mean, a very simple example of this, there's a wonderful experiment on the London tube, the underground, where there was a tube strike which affected three um, lines. And so everybody who lived on one of those three underground lines had to find a different way to get into work for two weeks. And a group at the University of Cambridge looked at Oyster card data, uh, which is the behavioral data of checking in and checking out. And they discovered that a significant minority of those people stuck with their new way of getting to work after the strike had finished. They discovered something about it which was better. Or they used it some of the time because they discovered that on your new way to work, there was a really good food shop or a speciality cheese shop. So if you, it, it was only three minutes longer getting home and you could pick up some speciality cheese, okay? But, I mean, in, in Europe, we have speciality. I know in America, you only have the yellow one and the red one. Well, but, we, you know, we, have, we have cheese here. We, America is, we are uh, not as advanced as you, but we have cheese. No, 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 in fairness, both cheese and beer in the United States have gone from being the worst <laughs> in the world to among the best. A very, very short period. So I'm not, I'm not going to be dissing you now. I, I, I'm a massive Americano file. I was really Listen, we're a young country. Oh, we're only about 250 some odd years old. We're a young country. I know. And cheese whiz, of course. I forgot the third one. But, well, that's um, not really cheese, but, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But the interesting thing, the interesting thing there was that if you shake people up occasionally, an occasional shock to the system strengthens the system. And what this will have is it will have major implications on how people behave in future. You know, do I really need to, you know, I was once told, okay, 10 years ago, admittedly slightly, you know, I was once asked to fly to Singapore to speak for 20 minutes, okay? After this is over, no fucking way am I doing that again, okay? Right? I didn't do it that time. I said, like, this is just stupid, okay? You know, I'm sorry, you know, I'm not the, you know, I'm not the world's greatest tree hugger, but this is just dumb. And so the opportunity to actually rethink what's important to us rather than essentially getting trapped in a, to use nerdy complexity theory language, getting trapped in a local maximum. And I think the world's got trapped in a local maximum. And this is a chance for a kind of annealing process to actually help us find uh, um, a new higher summit somewhere else. Well, you use that would be my really, really optimistic message. Yeah, that's if that's can, terrific. If you can do that without major death, uh, that's an additional bonus. Yeah, well, uh, uh, it, it is an opportunity which we shouldn't uh, throw away, which is the the, the possibility of, of actually that I think most people, even people on the political right like me, think that the world had become trapped in a kind of local maximum. And, and everything was being judged on things which aren't fundamentally important to us as a species. And we're becoming over-optimized along the wrong lines. And just as you get fashion in, you know, a major world event changes fashion in clothes, it'll change fashions in behavior. Last question before we wrap up uh, this episode of Great Minds. T today, um, who out there do you admire? Who out there beyond your immediate circle at Ogilvy and the WPP family, when you look at what are the great minds who, either people that you know or people that you just read about, watch, listen to, who do you look to? Uh, among, among dead people, there are people like um, uh, James Webb Young, big fan of, I haven't mentioned him for years, I feel guilty about that, but also Howard Luck Gossage, the sage of San Francisco, I think is a role model for all of us. Um, he's unfortunately dead. Um, so, and you, so you can't really interview him, can you? Um, who would be fantastic people to interview? Uh, Dave Trott has, um, it, it does a wonderful service in the UK. Yeah, uh, we, like we, like we like Dave. But who, um, but who inspires you? Forget about who we might want to look to. Who, who do you look to? Uh, weirdly, to a bunch of people, um, uh, what I try and do, and I, this seems like sort of, so there, okay, there are people in Ogilvy who I've long admired, Annette King, who's now a publicist, um, uh, there's Paul O'Donnell, who runs uh, Ogilvy Europe, there's some fantastic people there, Drayton Bird, who I still, you know, uh, who, by the way, his autobiography has come out called You Did What?, so if you get a chance to buy Drayton Bird, the autobiography of You Did What, it's got a lot about direct marketing in it, but it's got a lot of scurrilous uh, um, uh, gossip and outrage. So it's, it's doubly enjoyable and useful. I, I, I can recommend that. Um, and, um, uh, but um, one of the things I try and do is look for inspiration in related fields. I think one of the things you notice when we go down to Cannes is we've become ridiculously self-obsessed as an industry. And there are people in fields like there's a guy called Luca Delana who's posting quite a lot of online about this uh, coronavirus crisis. Now he's a kind of complexity theory expert. Uh, there's a wonderful guy called Jug Bala in Washington D.C. Uh, there's a fantastic guy called uh, Guru um, 
Madhav Amsan, uh, who's also. So what I try and do, and this is why this job title is so glorious, is, you know, there are lots and lots of people paid to be nice to the marketing director of P&G. OK, and I see my job as being a kind of oblique version of that, where what I need to do is actually go and be nice to and, and learn from and inject information from these kind of people. Uh, Nassim Taleb is a friend of mine. He's a fantastic influence. And so um, uh, what, one of the things is, I, I'll end it with, with the guy who's probably the biggest influence on me uh, in Toto, uh, Jeremy Bulmore. And Jeremy, um, who was uh, non-executive director of WPP and previously creative director of J. Walls Thompson, uh, Jeremy was this extraordinarily sage figure for the whole of WPP for many years. And he's written many, many fantastic books his other great quote, which you must never forget, is the best books about advertising aren't about advertising. So you use this opportunity to go and inform yourself, as David Ogilvy would have said about an ideal copywriter, become an extensive browser in all kinds of fields. And um, uh, it really pays off because, as I say, you, <laughs> it's, it's partly just gaming the system, OK? Being the best tennis player in the world is really diff difficult, OK? Because you're up against a lot of people trying to do the same thing. But if you can find two related skill areas which overlap and try to be really good at both of them, interestingly, Bjorn Borg started off as a table tennis player. Will you believe it? OK, but if you can find those kind of related skill areas and try and find two that overlap, then you can make yourself really unique. Fantastic. Well, your job title as vice chairman of Ogilvy in the UK uh, may be uh, attractively vague, but you are anything but vague. And you've been a wonderful guest here on Great Minds. Stay safe and healthy, Rory. We all, uh, we all need to root for each other at this time. And uh, it's fantastic. And I will have Susie call you and insult you to your heart's delight. And the vital thing is, if you stay home, if you can stay home, you must stay home. Very, very simple heuristic rule. We, we in this business can continue to function to a large extent this way. Therefore, it's incumbent on us to do so. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I'll speak to you soon, my friend. Stay well. It's a joy. See you soon in better times. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.